Let me invite you to turn to Hosea chapter 5. Hosea chapter 5. Suppose your your spouse approached you and said, Honey, I know things have been difficult financially, and I know how hard it's been on you, and so I want to I want to help replace your vehicle. So I decided I'm going to do some extra work so that we can get that vehicle replaced. I know how much that means to you. So I'm going to personally make a sacrifice so that you can have what you want. Well, you would respond, wow, thank you. That's uh, quite a kind thing to do. What a, what a loving spouse you are. But then you find out that your spouse is intending to get this money by sleeping with one of the neighbors. And quickly your joy becomes shock. How could you do that? I thought you said you loved me. You, you're going to give up yourself in order for me to have this? But I, I don't care about the car anymore. Hey, that, I, you didn't get what I was going after. I wasn't concerned about about having things. The, the main thing that I want is, is your heart. I, I want you to be loyal to me. And I don't care how much sacrifice it takes. The thing that I want is your loyalty. And you know, that's exactly the problem that Israel, that God was facing with Israel. That God wanted Israel's heart. He wanted them to be loyal to Him. And they thought that they were doing great things for God. They, they were going to be sacrificing to Him and, and doing all these, these ritual, ritualistic type things so that He would be pleased. And God, in effect, is saying, you don't know me. You don't know what I want. I don't want all of those things. That's not what I want. I want your heart. And God, like a prosecutor is going to make his case to show Israel that while they draw near to him with their lips, their heart is far from him. And that's what we're going to see in these uh, few chapters here, chapters 5 through 8. What we need to learn today is that God desires to have a right relationship with his people, but sin hinders us from the best fellowship that we can have with him. Let's begin reading with Hosea chapter 5 and verse 1. Hear this, O priests. Give heed, O house of Israel. Listen, O house of the king. For the judgment applies to you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread out on Tabor. The revolters have gone deep in depravity, but I will chastise all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God for a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know the Lord. Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him, and Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also has stumbled with them. They will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He is withdrawn from them. They have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have borne illegitimate children. Now the new moon will devour them with their land." Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound an alarm in Beth-Avon. Behind you, Benjamin. 
Ephraim will become a desolation in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel, I declare what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to follow man's command. Therefore, I am like a moth to Ephraim and like rottenness to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. And he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. God desires to have a right relationship with His people. But these people had become so hard-hearted that God had to judge them. He had to bring down a judgment upon them that would be heard for all ages and that would not be, where there would not be reconciliation of the nation until, uh, until the future, really. And we'll talk about when that will be. First thing that we see in chapter 5 is or, or the whole chapter is talking about adultery and high places. The first part of the chapter, verses 1 through 7, shows Israel's spiritual adultery. And the purpose of the prophecy is for for all the people to recognize that God is speaking about them. Notice who God is, or Hosea is talking to on behalf of God. Hear this, O priests. So we have priests. Give heed, O house of Israel. Listen, O house of the king. So we have the priests, the king, and his court, and also all the house of Israel. So it's not excluding anyone. Ephraim, you'll see here in the chapter and, and throughout the rest of the book, it is a word that's used 36 times in the book of Hosea. Ephraim, you remember, was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, it was the, the largest of the 10 northern tribes of Israel. And so Hosea uses it as a, as a way to refer to Israel. So you'll see this term interchanged very easily with the word Israel itself. So whenever you hear that in this, in this book, I, verse 3, for example, I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. That's referring to Israel. And, and, and uh, Hosea just simply uses that as a way to, um, to, to talk about them. There, notice their problem in verse 3. I know Ephraim. And Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Okay, we need to go back to chapter 4, verse 12, to see what playing the harlot means. We saw that several times in that passage that we looked at last week. Chapter 4, verse 12. My people consult their wooden idol, and their diviner's wand informs them. For a spirit, spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have played the harlot. And then here's the definition departing from their God. They departed from their God. And so in chapter 5, verse 3, although God knew them, look at the first part of verse 3, chapter 5, I know Ephraim, yet look at verse 4 at the very end, they do not know the Lord. God knew them, but they did not know Him because they had been involved in this spiritual adultery, this harlotry, this this departing from God. 
And God said, in essence, you don't know me. You don't know what I want for you. You don't want know what I want for myself. And so, like a witness to their own case, verse 5, we have a self-incrimination where, where Israel really stands as a witness against their own case. Verse 5, Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him. And Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah has also stumbled with them. The idea of stumbling there is it's it's a serious mistake. And we saw in chapter 4, verse 15, that Israel was in a way responsible for Judah because Judah was following along with what Israel was doing. They looked up to Israel and in more ways than one, and they said, you know, if, if it's okay for Israel, if they're going to act like this and they're God's people and, and we're God's people, then we can act like that too. And so Israel really took responsibility in a way for Judah. I mean, ultimately it was their own responsibility, but, but Israel did have a part in that. And even though, verse 6, God would bring them favor, the Lord would only be found when He, he was turned to with a sincere heart. Verse 6, they will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find Him. He has withdrawn from them. And ultimately, their idolatry would be their downfall. Verse 7, they have dealt treacherously with or against the Lord. So Israel's adultery. And then we see that Israel, as a result of their spiritual adultery, verses 8-14, through 14, faces the wrath of God. They face the wrath of God. And so God says, Sound the trumpets, blow the horn. The idea is, it's time to call the battle, similar to what we had at, at the Valley of Jehoshaphat and Joel, when, when you have the, the, uh, the, the wide group of people standing in the valley, and the trumpets are sounded, and judgment is coming. It's time for them to be judged. It's time for battle to take place. One of the reasons for this judgment is found in verse 10. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. At night, people would move a boundary in order to expand their territory. Can you imagine this? When everyone's in bed, they go out and they move the boundaries out a little farther so that they have a larger piece of property, which in effect is stealing. And God says, you have done the same thing to me. You have moved these, these spiritual boundaries by trying to make sacred what, what I say is reprehensible. See, I've put up the, these guardrails for you and you've moved them out even farther. You, you've done this as if it were in the middle of the night. And, and the reason that you've done it, verse 11, is because, look at the end, he was determined to follow man's command. They were, they were so set on, on trying to take care of man-made laws that they set aside the very system and the very structure that God had set up for them. It should have been easy to follow them, but instead they, they made up their own rules and they cared more about them than about God's. And instead of turning to God, they turned to, to their wicked neighbors. Look at verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness... And Judah, his wound, where did Israel turn? They went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob, but he was unable to heal you or to cure you of your, cure you of your wound. You go to these wicked neighbors, Assyria. I mean, of all people, why should they be going to their enemies? But they go there to try to get some help. And what does God say? 
did you no good. They're not going to bring you any healing. They're not going to take care of your problems. You're turning to the wrong place. And so what we have here is judgment from God. We see this in several verses. Verse 9, Ephraim will become a desolation. Verse 10, the princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour out my wrath. Verse 12, therefore I am like a moth. That is, I'm going to make the, the I'm going to tear them apart and like rottenness to the house of, of Judah. Verse 14, I will be like a lion to Ephraim. These are all phrases that talk about God's judgment that is coming upon Israel as a result of their sin. But God doesn't want to judge them. God is a loving God. And he wrestles with this, he struggles with this idea that he has to judge them. We'll see this as we come up, uh, as we move forward. But what you'll notice next is verses, chapter 5, verse 15, through chapter 6, verse 3. He, he has an appeal to return and to be raised. Okay, here, here's a chance. I, I've told you what you've done, I've told you what's going to happen, but, but here's your opportunity to turn to me. Look at God's great desire, verse 15 of chapter 5. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. God returns to his place like a lion returns to his lair. He's awaiting what? He's awaiting the people to acknowledge their sin. Just, just do that for me, would you? That's what I'm asking for. That's my great desire. We can have a right relationship again. And then chapter 6, verses 1-3 through talks about the, the future repentance of Israel. Notice what's going to happen on that day. And it's still future even for us. Look at verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. There will be a day when national Israel, through individual repentance, okay, will come back to God, where, where they will receive divine favor. But it will not be until they repent, until, verse 15, they acknowledge their guilt and seek His face. That's what's required of them. In fact, the same thing is true today, that repentance precedes divine favor. Now, I didn't say that repentance uh, causes divine favor. Okay, So if we come to God, we repent of our sin, He has to give us His favor. No, it precedes. God has already ordained that if we come to Him and repent, just like He came in salvation, that the result would be what? Forgiveness of sins. Or, in, in this term, as this passage terms it, divine favor. It is the mean that means that God has ordained that that will precede His favor to His people. So, in chapter five, verse fifteen, God says, "Acknowledge your guilt, seek My face, and when that happens, there will be restoration." God's ultimate purpose in judgment is not to punish. God's purpose in judgment is not to punish. It is to restore. 
this is what He's doing to Israel and this is what He's doing in your life. When there is judgment, uh, or when there is, we could say better, discipline, it is not for the purpose of, of putting your, your face in the ground with His thumb or, or forcing you to submit. Rather, it is to, to cause us to restore, to be restored to Him. That's what God is doing. And so in verse 2, he says that in two days, and then on the third day, he will revive us after two days and raise us up on the third. This is the idea of the, the quickness of God's restoration. We've seen this before in Joel and also in Jonah, that God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He wants to do good to his children, but they have to turn to him. And so when they do, he's quick to restore them. Now, this judgment this final judgment that comes upon Israel will be at the tribulation. There will be the, the remaining Israelites who have rejected God will be punished. In fact, the second half of the tribulation will be the worst time in human history. There will be the, the, there's basically four purposes of the tribulation. Number one, judgment of confirmed sinfulness. You remember in Joel chapter 3, verse 13, that... that uh, Joel says, "Put the sickle in; the harvest is ready. It's time to it's time to mow them down. It's time to cut down these people who have been opposing God all this time." And so, the first purpose of the tribulation is judgment of those who have been confirmed in sinfulness. The second purpose is chastening of Israel. Israel will be judged for their centuries of unbelief, and especially for their treaty with the Antichrist, seen in Daniel chapter twelve, verse one. That they have made a treaty with the very agent of the devil. And as a result, they're going to be chastened. The result of this chastening is going to be that Israel, the rest of Israel, will turn to God through individual repentance and will be born again as a new nation. And these saved remnant will inherit the kingdom of God and receive the promises that God had given to His people. And then the final purpose is the salvation of the Gentiles. You remember that as a result of Israel's salvation, that multitudes of Gentiles will come to know God and will come to know Christ. And in fact, the bulk of the tribulation martyrs will be Gentiles. So that is what is in view, I believe, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. And so the exhortation that Hosea gives on behalf of God is this. Verse 3, so let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. That's the exhortation. Then the Lord's sorrow over Israel's sin is seen in chapter 6, verse 4, all the way through the end of chapter 7. You see the Lord's struggle. I said that the Lord didn't want to judge them. And you see His struggle here. Verse 4, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Verse 4, the Lord struggles to destroy them. What, what will I do with you? As if they are the wayward spouse that Hosea portrays for the people of Israel the loyalty quickly fades. Notice the end of verse 4. For your loyalty is like a morning cloud. That is 
the morning fog. It's, it's there for a little while, then it fades away. Or the dew. It's there for a short time, and then it's gone. And that's what your loyalty is like to me, God says. That's what it's like. But that's not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for fading loyalty. Verse 6, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. I don't care about the sacrifices as much as I care about you turning to me and turning with your whole heart. Sacrifice is good, but apart from loyalty, it means nothing. Ask the Pharisees. They knew all about it. It would be similar to Gomer saying to Hosea as I... As I started at the beginning, I know how much you like sacrifice, and so I'm going to get you some money by going into prostitution this week. Hosea said, I don't want your money. I want your heart. God's not looking for us to fulfill all of these spiritual duties that we think we have to in order to please Him. He's looking for your heart. He's looking for you to be loyal to Him. Now, certainly we can't be loyal to Him apart from spiritual duties. You recognize that? that? That certainly we do have to be people who are in the Word, that we are spending time meeting with God's people, that we are singing praises to Him, that we're building up each other in our most holy faith. We cannot do it apart from that, but, but we can't do only that. We have to do it with an engaged heart. And so chapter 6, verse 7 through 9, we see the sin of these three cities. But like Adam, and this is referring to city, and you know that because the end of the verse says there. I'll show you that in just a second. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. And then he talks about two other cities. Gilead is a city of wrongdoers, tracked with bloody footprints. And as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed a crime. Hosea is talking about cities here, not people. He says there they have transgressed. transgressed, And there's no covenant that we know of that God made with Adam. So this is probably referring to the city of Adam. They have transgressed this covenant with God just like these cities had done. And as a result, judgment was going to come upon them. Verse 10, In the house of Israel I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's harlotry in there. Is there Israel has defiled itself. Also, also, O Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you. God was going to judge Israel and Judah. Instead of harvest being a joyful time, which it normally was, this harvest was going to be full of pain. There was going to be great uh, sorrow during this harvest of judgment. You know, God knows our wickedness. We see that at the end of verse 11, when I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief enters in, bandits raid outside. Chapter 7, verse 2, and they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their deeds are all around me, them, and, and they are before my face. With their wickedness, they make the king glad and the princes with their lies. God is saying, I know about it. I know about their wickedness. They, they think it's, it's hidden from me, but I know about it. And I think about it. And it concerns me. It's a problem. And so now, in chapter 7, verse 4 to the end of the chapter, we have four similes 
Okay, that's just simply a, a comparison using the word like. Four similes for unfaithful Israel. First, we have an oven in verses 4 through 7. They are all adulterers, like an oven heated by the baker, who ceases to stir up the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with scoffers. For their hearts are like an oven as they approach their plotting. Their anger smolders all night. In the morning it burns like a flaming fire. All of them are hot like an oven. They consume their rulers and their kings have fallen. None of them calls on me. The oven begins in verse 4 with a quiet passion that does not go out. In verse 6, it's a suppressed passion like an anger that's smoldering over and over again until it unexpectedly or violently erupts. And then verse 7, it's a consuming passion that will devour rulers and kings. We don't care who's in our way. Our anger has overtaken us. God says, this is how you are, Israel. This is... This is what you look like. Your anger is like an oven. In fact, four of the last six kings of Israel were assassinated. Israel didn't want anybody to control them. They wanted their freedom, their liberty. So they're like an oven. Then verses 8-10, through 10, they're like a half-baked cake. Ephraim mixes himself with the nation. Ephraim has become a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, yet he does not know it. And gray hairs also are sprinkled on him, yet he does not know it. Though the pride of Israel testifies against him, yet they have not returned to the Lord their God, nor have they sought him for all of this. Cakes were baked on hot stones. And God is saying that you are like a half-baked cake. You're burned on one side and you're raw on the other. And what do you do with a half-baked cake? Do you serve it to somebody? You throw it out. It's no good. Israel had made alliances with these foreign nations and as a result, they lost their power and eventually their lives. They were no good. They were no use to God because they had so turned from Him. So they were like a half-baked cake. But they are also like a silly dove. Verse 11. So Ephraim has become like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. When they go, I will spread my net over them. I will bring them down like the birds of the sky. They are like a silly dove. That is, they are without sense. They go to foreign nations for help. Of all people, how foolish are you? And God says, I'm going to come over you with a net. Verses 13 through 16, they are like a deceitful bow. Woe to them, for they have strayed from Me. Destruction is theirs, for they have rebelled against Me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against Me. They don't cry to Me from their heart. When they wail on their beds for the sake of grain and new wine, they assemble themselves. They turn away from Me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against Me. They turn, but not upward. They're like a deceitful bow. Their princes will fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This will be their derision in the land of Egypt. They call to God, but not with their hearts. It's only with their lips. Verse 14. They're deceitful. They don't really want God. Notice again, verse 14. They cry to me from, they do not cry to me from their heart when they wail from their bed. So they're crying out, but notice what they wail for. For the sake of grain and new wine. God. 
Give us what we want. We, we love you. Just give us what we want. And as long as you do that, we'll do what you want. But God recognized that their festivals were for their, their own selves. For their own benefit, not for God, verse 15. And so they, they turn, alright, verse 16. They turn, but not upward. Not to me. So Israel is is judged and and shown their sin. Then Israel's hypocrisy is seen in chapter 8. Their hypocrisy. Their vain reliance on superficial religion is seen in the first six verses. Put the trumpet to your lips. Like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed My covenant and rebelled against My law. They cry out to Me, My God, we of Israel know You. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have appointed princes, but I did not know it. With their silver and gold, they have made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. He has rejected your calf, O Samaria, saying, My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For from Israel is even this. A craftsman made it, so it is not God. Surely the calf of Samaria will be broken to pieces. Verses 1-3, through we see that they call out to God while they're practicing their sin. While they're enjoying their sin. And they say even, verse 2, we know you. We of Israel know you. But that type of talk is, is only hypocritical. Because God exposes them in the following verses. Look what you're doing. Verse 4, you've made alliances with foreign nations. In fact, you set up all these kings, but you didn't consult me. You set up these princes over you, but I didn't know about it. You didn't come and seek me. You spent all this money, but not of things which I would approve. Don't say that you're doing this on behalf of me. You have nothing to do with me. All you care about is your personal pleasures. See their worship of false gods, the calf there in verse 5. And then at the end of the verse 5, how long will they be incapable of innocence? That is, how long will they be incapable of purity? How long will they stray from Me and not be pure people? When will this end? Reliance on religion is not reliance on God. Doesn't matter how long you've been in church, it doesn't matter which church you go to, reliance on a religion is not reliance on God. God wants our hearts. He wants our whole person involved. Now we should certainly follow what He has commanded us to do, but but we have to do it with a heart that is connected to what we're doing, not detached. Verses 7-10 through talk about a reliance on foreign nations. For they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It yields no grain. Should it yield, strangers would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. They're now among the nations like a vessel in which no one delights. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey all alone. Ephraim has hired lovers even though they hire allies among the nations. Now I will gather them up and they will begin to diminish because of the burden of the king of princes. 
A vain reliance on foreign nations. And then the last four verses, a vain reliance on external conformity. Or we could say, a vain reliance on their religious practices. Verse 11, since Ephraim has multiplied altars for sins, they have become altars of sinning for him. Though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law, they're regarded as a strange thing. And as for my sacrificial gifts, they sacrifice the flesh and eat it. But the Lord has taken no delight in them, nor will He remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. They will return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten His Maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities, but I will send a fire on its cities that it may consume its palatial dwellings. Verse 12 says, They have all these words from God, but they only follow the ones that are expedient to them, don't they? The ones that are, are, are easy for them, convenient. Yeah, I'll, I'll follow this command, this command. They package the one. I'll take these, but, but those over there, you want me to do that? I don't know about that. How am I supposed to have time to enjoy my sin? How many people in our day think that they're doing what is pleasing to God because they're following a few commands of, them, of Him? God isn't looking for convenient obedience or compartmentalized obedience. Okay, I'll obey you in this area of my life, but I'm not giving you this area because this is mine. God is looking for complete obedience. He wants the whole thing. He is Lord of all and He demands that He be Lord of all of your person. So what is the message for us from these four chapters? I would sum up the message in these four words. Return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. Let me show you where I get this. Look at chapter 5, verse 4. We're going to go back through this passage just quickly. Uh, cite some, some references here as we make application for ourselves. Return to the Lord. Verse 4. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. This is what God wants them to do. Look down to verse 15. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. This is what God's looking for, for them to return to Him. Chapter 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 10. Though the pride of Israel testifies against Him, yet they have not returned to the Lord their God. Verse 13. Woe to them, for they have strayed from Me. And then the end of the verse says, they have rebelled against Me. In verse 14, the second half of the verse, they turn away from Me. This is what God is showing them. Okay, you, You're up on the stand now, Israel. I'm putting you up on the stand. And now I'm coming to prosecute you. Let me show you what you've done. This is what I require of you, that you return to Me. The reason that they haven't returned, turn back to chapter 5, verse 4. What do you suppose that is? The reason they haven't returned. Let's read verse 4. Their deeds will not allow them to return to the Lord, for a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know the Lord. Why is it that Israel has not returned to the Lord? Why is it that we do not return to the Lord when we stray from Him? Because we do not know God. We don't know what He delights in and we don't care. 
This is what God delights in. Chapter 6, verse 6. I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. And notice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is what God wants. He wants us to know Him. Chapter 7, verse 10. Though the pride of Israel testifies against Him, they have not returned to the Lord their God, nor have they sought Him. Chapter 8, verse 2. They cry out to Me, My God, we of Israel know You. They say they know God, but saying is not knowing. Just because you say you know God doesn't mean you know God. Chapter 8, verse 14. The very last verse of our passage for Israel has forgotten His Maker. This was the problem. God wanted them to return to Him, but they didn't return because they didn't know Him. They thought that God was just some big, giant Santa Claus that would just pour down on them blessing after blessing. God was looking for them to turn to Him and know Him. The reason that God wants them to return is because, and this is, I think, the message of Hosea, that He desires to have a relationship with them. And I would say, by extension, God desires to have a relationship with you. Just like Hosea with Gomer. Gomer. He did it because he had a choice. God said, go love this woman that, that is loved by another man. Go love her. The picture there is, that's exactly the way that I love my people. It's not because of anything special. I desire to have a relationship with them. Chapter 6, verse 4. Notice his struggle. What shall I do? What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? It's as if God is a, a husband who has been betrayed by his wife and he longs to restore that relationship. What will I do for you? How can I get you to love me? Notice chapter 7, verse 1. We see some more of his desire to, to, to heal Israel. When, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered. I desire to heal him, he's saying. And yet, chapter 4, verse 7 says that the more that they multiplied, the more people that there were, the more their sin multiplied. Chapter 7, verse 13. Woe to them, for they have strayed from Me. Destruction is theirs, for they have rebelled against Me. And then literally, I would redeem them, or I long to redeem them. I, I want to redeem them. Isn't this a great statement? God desires to redeem us, to bring him to bring us back to himself. I long to do it, but they they fail to acknowledge their sin. We saw the the Lord's love for Israel as Hosea loved Gomer in chapter 3 verse 1 that that even as Hosea was going to love Gomer, God loved Israel. That was the point. And he said, I want to betroth you forever. I want to have an eternal relationship with you. So the message is return to the Lord. They haven't returned because they don't know God. God wants them to return because He desires to have a relationship with His people, but they have to come on His terms. They have to come on His terms. So here's, here's where we need to, to learn from from these people. God doesn't want our sacrifices primarily. 
He doesn't want you to conform to rules alone. That is not what God is about doing. What does He want? Chapter 7, verse 14. And they do not cry to Me from their heart. What does God want? God wants our heart. They cry out to Me, sure, but but it's just for the gifts that they can give. God, our, our bottles of wine here are a little empty. What can You do for Me? Fill up our grain, our barns full of grain. You know, and God wanted to satisfy them. God wanted to, to give them things, but, but the greatest gift that He can give is what? More of Himself. You see, God wants our heart, so we need to turn to Him with our heart. And He doesn't want just a part of it. Chapter 8, verse 12. He wants all of your heart. Though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law, they're regarded as a strange thing. Don't pick and choose which commands you will obey. Don't do the ones that are just convenient. Obey them all. In order to do that, you have to know God. You have to, you have to love God. You need to know His Word. Now, we have to be cautioned here that that a right relationship with God is not based on the number of commands that we obey. It's based on total commitment. It's based on giving of ourselves completely. And then the second caution is we must never detach the command from God or the command of God from the God of the command. Okay, This is what the Pharisees had done. They'd taken all these commands and put it all on the list. Okay, we got it. If we're going to please God, we're going to do all these things. So I'm going to do these things. And then eventually it was, if we're going to be righteous, then we're going to do all these things. And eventually it was complete uh, sinfulness. We can't detach the command of God from the God of the command. Notice chapter 5, verse 11. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he is determined to follow God's command. Now, commands in general are good and we should obey them. But there comes a point when we we set up for ourselves rules or fences and we forget the purpose of those rules, that we're trying to to maintain a relationship with God. Now, you can have a heart in the right place, ignore all the commands, and, and be displeasing to God. Ask Nadab and Abihu. Right? They, they came and offered this strange fire to the Lord. They, they had a desire to please Him, but as Paul would say, it would, be, it would be a zealousness that is not according to knowledge. They had zeal, but it was not according to what God had wanted. We can't detach the commands of God from our heart. We have to do it with our whole person. We have to have both. So God wants your heart. And He wants you to... Acknowledge your sin and seek His face. Chapter 5, verse 15. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and their affliction. They will earnestly seek me. This is a hard one. Acknowledging our sin before God. The easy thing for us to do is to ignore our sin before God. But God calls for us to acknowledge our unworthiness before Him. We must confess it, forsake it, and 
and ask for forgiveness and seek God's face, as Hosea says here. We must remember, however, that we cannot incur judgment upon ourselves because Christ has already took upon Himself all the judgment, has He not? Christ has already done that. And so we will not receive judgment from God because we are in a right relationship with Him on a judicial basis, that is, through justification. But we can still uh, harm our relationship with Him. We can still uh, hinder the best relationship that we could have with Him by ignoring our sin. So God says, acknowledge it. And I think one of the most amazing things amazing things of all of Scripture is that God desires to have a relationship with sinful people. From the time of creation, obviously at that time there was no sin, but God desired to have a relationship with His image bearers, didn't He? He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis chapter 2. But then after that relationship was broken apart when they were expelled from the garden, when, when that relationship was marred in Genesis chapter 3, God had to design, which He had already done, another way in, for, in which He could have a relationship with His people. And so now He would not dwell face to face as He did in the garden. Rather, He sent His Spirit to indwell these people. And then God's presence was made known through the, the pillar of the cloud and the, the, uh, the fire that led Israel through the wilderness. Then He designed the tabernacle. And what did He say there in Exodus chapter 29? I will consecrate the tent of meeting. I will dwell among My people and I will be their God and they will be My people. See, He began, he began developing this relationship where He could be known. And then He started inscripturating Himself. That is, giving His Word so that people could, could hear from Him and find out more about Him. He had people start writing down His Word. He, he later dwelled in the temple beginning with Solomon. And then in the New Testament, He dwells within the church of Christ. And then in the millennial reign, Jesus will rule among His people on David's throne. And in the eternal kingdom to follow... Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, John tells us, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, that is the people, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. From Exodus all the way to Revelation, this is what God is doing. He's trying to, to enter into a relationship with His people. And that's what He's trying to do with you and with me. So what is our response here? Chapter 6, verse 3, I think sums it up nicely for us. So, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. This is what God wants. For us not to simply follow a list of rules so that we can check it off and say, God, you're, you're all set because I've done this. God wants your heart. God wants all of your heart. What is it that you're holding back from Him? What is it that you're not willing to give up? 
What is it that, that you do in life and even in, in, in services that, that you do without thinking? You can draw near to God with your lips, but, but your heart can still be far from Him. God wants your heart. And so it requires that we, first of all, know God, but then constantly engage our minds as we, we participate in service of worship. That we're thinking about what is being said. That we're thinking about what we are singing. And that requires work. God's not looking for mindless robots. He's looking for a spouse who will love Him as He loves them. What will you give to God? Will you give Him your heart? Let's bow together in prayer.